Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Arthritis Voices 360, the talk show hosted by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. My name is Danielle Das. I will be one of your co-hosts today. I am a patient living with rheumatoid arthritis and axial spondyloarthritis, as well as primary biliary cholangitis, which is an autoimmune liver disease. And I'm also going to be one of your 2020 recurring co-hosts for the show. If you haven't listened to my previous episodes, I've been on to talk about discrimination in the workplace, and I was on one of the earlier COVID-19 episodes. You can check those out. I would love to hear what you thought of them. I'm super happy to be back today with Kristen. Kristen, welcome to the show. Please tell us about yourself. Thank you. Thank you. So glad to be here. So I am the founder and co-leader of the St. Louis Support Group for the Spondylitis Association of America. For those of you who have not heard of that, it is the leading nationwide nonprofit for education, empowering, uh, learning how to advocate for people who live with spondylitis and other related diseases. I myself have ankylosing spondylitis since very young. My first neurologist, I think, was probably around age 12. And it really ramped up at age 16. My triggering event was a motor vehicle accident, uh, rolled six times. So that was really my, my triggering event. So I myself have suffered through uh, several spine surgeries, most recently in December. Still struggle to work. Been working in the medical field since the beginning, my first job. So something that I struggle with and still kind of uh, do my best to jump into. And I also have done quite a few projects with the the Spondylitis Association. So we're working on a map of ankylosing spondylitis. started over in Spain, University of Seville, and it has spread to 17 countries so far. And we're working on doing that for the U.S. So it works on the impacts and the burden of people who have ankylosing spondylitis, those troubles we have keeping a job, uh, working full-time, the, the ways we can speak to our employers about the situations that we, we kind of have trouble with for like standing for long periods of time and how to do that in a way that does not threaten our jobs, because that's, of course, what most of us are concerned about. So that's a little bit about me and uh, really excited to come in and, and talk with everyone about these masks that I use every day for work and what we can do to assist the the normal everyday person in how to use a mask and keep yourself safe. And Kristen, what type of healthcare work are you doing right now? I am currently in ophthalmology, eye care. So one of the 
three major ways that you're getting the COVID is by having the virus on your hands or something, and then you're touching your eyes, nose, or mouth. So that could be rubbing your eye, that could be picking your nose, which is one of the leading causes, surprisingly, and also from eating. So not washing your hands and then touching something and then touching your mouth or you know, touching your phone or other item and then touching your face. So uh, that is where I'm at now. Okay, so if you haven't guessed, Kristen is on today to talk about a COVID-19 topic. So this is one of our special COVID-19 episodes. And she and I are going to dig in today to the topic of personal protective equipment. And we're going to talk very specifically about masks. And before we get into kind of the nuts and bolts here, I do want to take a moment and just issue sort of a blanket disclaimer. None of the information you're going to hear today should be construed as an official recommendation on behalf of the International Foundation for AI Arthritis or the Spondylitis Association of America. We can't do that at this point because there's so much conflicting information. You know, the CDC and the WHO don't agree with each other. The studies coming out of this university don't agree with the studies coming out of that university. So what we decided to do when Kristen and I, when we sat down and talked about how to put together this episode, we want to give you all the information that has been vetted, that we consider to be reliable, and tell you, you know, kind of our reaction to it, what we think about it personally, not as an organization. And then we want you to be able to make the best decision for your situation. You know, someone who is extremely high risk, who lives in a hot spot area, is going to maybe make a different decision than somebody who lives in a very rural location that has had zero registered cases so far and whose immune system is not currently suppressed by biologics. So we don't feel comfortable making any kind of one size fits all recommendation. We just want you to take the information, apply it to your situation and make the best decision for your own personal safety. Kristen, would you tell us just a little bit about what PPE means? Like, what is, we keep hearing about that in the news, and I'm sure a lot of people have seen headlines with PPE in the title. What are they talking about when the media says PPE? Well, PPE is, the definition is protective clothing. That would be helmets, goggles, gloves, masks. It's garments or equipment designed to protect the wearer from some sort of injury or infection. Okay, so this is something that you probably use a lot in your normal work setting, yes? Absolutely, every day. Okay, what what types of PPE before the COVID-19 are you using on a daily basis? All of them or, or, or some of those really just for certain situations? So thinking of ophthalmology, if you've ever gotten your eyes checked, typical setting, typical patients, routine exams, you would not see much of the PPE. Most of that is routinely just done with large amounts of hand washing, hand sanitizer, and cleaning the rooms between patients. In a hospital setting, ophthalmology is a little different. We do procedures and things in the office, minor surgeries and things just right then and there that would require the use of gloves, things like that, but we were not typically on using masks while working on someone's eyelid being eight inches from their face was not something that we were typically concerned about. Okay. And now that COVID-19 is sort of spreading across the country, have you seen in your personal work setting 
the use of PPE changing in terms of how you need to protect yourself and protect your patients? Everything has changed. It's almost like a wartime type pandemic, this thing that we're going through. So you'll see a lot of routine eye care clinics are completely closed, not even able to see patients at all. Uh, Our clinic for where I'm working, we are only seeing patients for two hours a day. They're spread 30 minutes apart, so they never come in contact with anyone else in the waiting room. We have time to clean up, clean our hands and things before we greet the next person. And so those four patients a day that we see are all on emergency basis only. So people who want a new pair of glasses or they had cataract surgery with us two months ago and now we need to follow up and get ready to operate on their other eye, those are just really in the wind for right now. It's only an emergency type basis. So... Your personal use of PPE, would you say it's fair to say uh, that that the amount of masks, the amount of gloves, things like that, that you personally need has increased, even though the, your patient load has decreased? Yeah. So now we're going in full gear. So I even had someone yesterday who told me that, you know, it's kind of alarming seeing you come in with your surgical cap on and your full face mask and, you know, your glasses on and everything. And I can't see anything but your eyes. And this is the first time I've met you. And it's, it's kind of alarming. And I told him, well, you know, I have seen other nurses put a picture of themselves, a laminated picture or something that can be cleaned on the outside of their gown or something to, to kind of seem a little bit more friendly because coming in each room now completely protected as best as we can is a huge change from what you would normally get. Oh, that's interesting. So like making the patient feel more comfortable by trying to restore a sense of normalcy almost. Yeah. I mean, I come in and I I smile and I, I greet them as I normally do, but they are focused on looking at, you know, my, my mask and my gown and, and, It doesn't occur to me so much that they can't see my smile, but it definitely occurs to them as, you know, they are coming in for something that they're already scared about anyways, because they're coming in as an emergency. But then when they come, they see us coming in 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 full gear, that also kind of sets the tone back a little bit as well. I got you. So I am not a healthcare provider. Um, I faint at the sight of blood. Both of my parents are physicians and everybody sort of assumed I would be a doctor. And then when I was six and started fainting every time blood was around, people were like, oh, hmm, (laughs) this this is not going to go well. But I did talk to my dad, who is an emergency room physician in Florida, and he actually sent me a photo because I was very concerned, you know, like, did he have the PPE that he needed? And he sent me a picture of how he goes into every exam room right now. And he was wearing a surgical mask, a face shield gloves, gown, you know, surgical cap. And this is just for regular patients. And then he said when he leaves the room, he takes all of that off and everything that's disposable is thrown away. Uh, The face shield is cleaned and he dons all new stuff for the next patient. If the patient has COVID symptoms, they add also an N95 mask, another layer of gloves and some other stuff. So I thought it was really interesting when I hear in the news people talking about, well, why is there a shortage of this PPE? You know, what's happening to it? I thought it would be good for our listeners to maybe understand that, you know, 
part of the issue. It's, it may not be the entire issue, but at least part of the issue is that our healthcare providers need more now than they have in the past. Because uh, as you said, you didn't necessarily need to wear a mask for every procedure. And you know, certainly, I know my dad did not wear a face shield for every patient. And you know, so just the way that our providers are having to protect themselves is so different. And the supply is just not there to to meet those needs. And he's very lucky because I know I've heard some ER docs are, you know, wearing one mask for an entire shift or even multiple shifts. So he's in a hospital that is well supplied. Not all of them are. That is correct. And it really kind of we're finding it can depend on the area or the type of setting that you're in. So the smaller practices or the smaller regional hospitals, things like that may not have as much cash flow to be able to purchase such items. So hospitals typically earn a lot of their money from, you know, all of these elective surgeries that they're doing. So without a lot of that going on, it does cut down on on the cash flow on, you know, what hospitals are just even billing to insurance companies because we're seeing so few patients compared to before. So that really affects how much we're able to spend on these items that we now need that we did not need before. But we will see a lot of, you know, smaller regional places that that probably don't have the large backing by universities and things would probably be more in line with, you know, using masks for maybe a full shift or um, I think we've all seen online where, you know, they're used for several days, things like that. That's scary. It's really scary. Okay, so let's dig into masks specifically because I know a lot of our listeners right now are wondering, you know, (laughs) do I need a mask? Should I be wearing a mask? What kind of mask should I wear? So we're going to get into the types of masks first. And I wanted to talk about first the masks that are traditionally used in a healthcare setting and the masks that we're hoping our listeners will continue to reserve for healthcare professionals. And we'll talk about, you know, why in more detail in just a second. So when we're talking about healthcare providers and masks, traditionally what comes to my mind would be surgical masks and N95 masks. Kristen, can you tell us the difference between those? So on the FDA's website, they describe the difference between the surgical and the N95 respirator. So the surgical mask is kind of what everyone is used to seeing, the kind of square shaped, it's loose fitting, it's disposable. What it's designed to do is create just a physical barrier between the mouth and nose of the person wearing it and any contaminants in their immediate environment. So whatever's within several feet of them. The edges of the mask are loose fitting. They do not form a seal around the nose and the mouth. And that's kind of the large difference here. So the N95 respirator is a protective device that they describe as designed to achieve a very close facial fit. So it's a very efficient filtration of the airborne particles. So the edges of the respirator, they form a seal around the nose and the mouth. So in order to properly fit an N95 mask, we go through training to learn the sizes, the fit. We're typically in a room where there is some sort of particles that they can test and see how well we have it sealed so that we can properly learn the the best fit for these masks so that we know that they're being used properly. Most people 
do not have that sort of training or the expertise to know how to do that. I myself as a medical professional don't know how to do that either. It was definitely the the experts who were able to test me and show me the proper way to fit that mask. Now the similarities, they're both fluid resistant. They filtrate particles, you know, bacteria. They're both biocompatible and both of them are not to be shared or reused per the FDA's website. Okay, so let's say that, you know, I go out in my garage and I have some materials from some prior home projects and uh, I painted my attic last summer for which I had an N95 mask and I take it out of the package and I throw that bad boy on and tighten it, you know, to where it feels comfortable to me and I wear it outside. Am I going to be protected from COVID-19? So with the use of an at-home N95 mask, and we are seeing a lot of people come into the office, the clinics, even at the grocery store, you'll see people with these on. You are going to be somewhat protected, just as you would with a, a surgical mask or procedure mask, but you are not going to get the full effect of the N95. Absolutely. So the studies that I see circulating online that claim that it can filter out 95% of viral particles, is that 95% of viral particles with common usage or is that 95% of viral particles when used correctly? Only when used correctly. Absolutely. So if you do not have the proper seal, the exact proper usage of the mask, you will find the particles are able to come in and come out from around the sides exactly like you do with the surgical procedure or cloth masks that we're seeing. Before COVID-19, right, if I was a healthcare provider and I was in a hospital setting and I was using an N95 respirator mask, what are some precautions I would take to make sure that I am protecting myself? The healthcare providers would typically only be wearing N95 masks for very specific situations of being within a certain range of someone who is high risk. And there is an entire procedure of putting on all of the, the PPE, which, which way you put it on, which order you put it on, in order to protect yourself completely. So that is something that we have all been doing training, even just refreshing the last few weeks, because it's not something that even in that setting every day was something that we have been able to keep up with or to to do properly. There are other departments who absolutely have had to do that maybe, you know, once a day for particular patients or procedures. Uh, In my department, we did not have to do a full a full gear every day, but we would at times have to use surgical masks. Gloves were, were definitely more common, but it is definitely something that, that would require full training to get the absolute use out of. Okay. So what are some things that you would learn during the training? Like, could I take it off and, you know, put it back on if it's uncomfortable? Like, what are some things that, that you learned not to do or to avoid doing? So one of the most important things that we learned and and discuss in training is the proper use of your PPE. So 
one of the biggest things that we have gone over is that you want to avoid touching your face by several things. You want to make sure you tie back any hair or anything that would be coming into contact with your face that would cause you to touch your face for any reason. You would want to put the face mask on and for several types of face masks, you would want to use a piece of medical tape right along the bridge of the nose and down the sides of the nose. And that helps in two ways. So the first way that helps is because your mask is not sliding down or being adjusted as you're talking, breathing, turning your head. That prevents you from reaching up and touching your face to adjust the mask. The second way that helps is it also kind of closes the gap between the mask and your nose and face, which is where a lot of the infiltrates would be able to come in. Another thing that that we really talk about with putting it on is the proper way to do that. So the proper way to put on your mask, the proper way to take it off without taking the the virus and the, the issues that you have on this mask and then contaminating your body, your other items around you with this mask. So for example, to place the mask, you would want to If it was a square cloth mask or anything with the loops, you would want to hold the very farthest ends of the loops. You would want to place the mask towards your face along the bridge of the nose first and then kind of bring it down under your chin and then take those loops and tie them back behind your ear. You do not want to touch the square portion of the mask in any way. You are literally just hanging on to the elastic type loops or the strings of the mask. To remove the mask, you're going to do the exact same thing. You're only going to touch the loops. You're going to remove it from behind the ears, fully take off the mask. And you really have to understand that there is so much of these particles on the front and the back of this mask that you want to be very careful about where you're placing this what you're doing with this and how you are going to put this mask back on or place it into the washing. And most of these cloth masks and things, it is something that you're going to want to wash every time you you come back in the house and remove this. So don't remove your mask as soon as you come out of the grocery store. Just uh, untie the top and let it hang down uh, against you because you now have that all over you. And every time you touch your neck or your, your chest or anything or or rub any items against it, it is now spread everywhere. So don't take it off. Put it in your grocery sack because you're now out of the danger zone because it is now being contaminated everywhere. And everywhere you touch in that bag is also going to be contaminated. So you want to be very careful the way that you put these on and take these off to make sure that you are not touching the mask itself in any way. And definitely wash your hands before and after. Before and after putting it on and removing it? Yes. Okay. So hypothetically speaking, if I were to wear a mask and use it improperly, is it possible that I would be putting myself at more risk than if I just didn't wear one and washed my hands? That's very, very possible. Absolutely. So maybe you went to an environment where you did not get within 15 feet of people. So the risk of breathing it in may not have been such an issue. However, you know, maybe touching things and now you've touched this mask and gotten it on the mask from your hands, 
and the, now the mask is hanging around your neck, you can definitely bring it into your environment by other ways, just by messing around with these things, rather than just going as you normally would and then just washing your hands with hand sanitizer after. Interesting. All right. So let's talk about the shortage, because every time I turn on the news, I'm hearing about concerns about a shortage. You know, what if there are not enough N95 masks? What if there are not enough surgical masks? And in some hospitals, we know there are already not enough of these masks. Bluntly speaking, what happens if we run out? I'm going to answer this question based purely off of the CDC's website and what they list as the six options for once no face masks are available. I'm not going to fully know what options my particular facilities are going to take or other facilities in town or even those in a, in a rural area. So I'm purely just going to answer this question based off of that, just to kind okay. of uh, keep myself and other professionals kind of out of the, the crossfire here. So one thing that they suggest, number one, is to exclude the healthcare professionals that are high risk for severe illness from the COVID-19 from contact with anyone who is known or suspected to have it. So that is someone like myself. I'm considered high risk because of my use of the biologics. Some of us are considered more high risk than others, depending on what type of medication you're using. We're just at this point saying that anyone who has lung issues, immune system problems, diabetes are going to be classified as high risk. And it is Step one, to kind of remove those people from working directly with patients who are either positive or are in the testing phase of the COVID-19. So that is typically step one. And most places are already doing that at this point. Number two is an interesting one. It is to designate the healthcare professionals who have already recovered from COVID-19 to put them in directly to work with the people who are positive or are in the testing phase. So if they've already had it, they've recovered, most of the time there can be like this period of immunity. Uh, how long that lasts, we don't know. But sometimes we can try to put those professionals to work directly with the COVID-19 patients. Uh, number three, they say using a face shield that covers the entire front all the way past the chin and all the way around the sides with no face mask at all. Now, these are not the typical face shields that we're putting on now. This is a full face shield, which is going to cover the, the whole area because there's going to be no mask underneath. So it's going to completely cover the sides. Number four, they say consider using patient isolation rooms to risk reduction. So they have these portable fan devices with HEPA filtration. It circulates and cleans the air, which will then reduce the risk for a professional who walks in with zero protection at all. So just by, by circulating, cleaning the air, it tries to absorb and, and remove as many particles as possible before the professional walks in. Uh, number five is they also make headboards that have the same sort of filter. So these headboards are made to draw up all of the air that the patient is breathing out to kind of make the entire room still full of healthy, clean air. So when the professional walks in, they're not being exposed. And number six 
is to use homemade masks such as bandanas or scarf. They do note that this is absolutely our last resort. Homemade masks are definitely not considered PPE. Their capability to protect health professionals is completely unknown at this point. Do you think it would be fair to assume that your smaller hospitals, your rural hospitals, the one you were talking about before that maybe don't have the cash flow are going to be somewhat limited in terms of having these like isolation rooms or special headboards? I mean, that kind of stuff just sounds expensive to me. Absolutely. So I am in a state where we are very rural. I think 90 of our counties as of last week still had zero positive cases because this is a rural area where people don't really travel in or out much. Um, You know, there's not really anything to draw people from the cities out to these areas. There's no reason to go there. Those people don't travel to St. Louis much except for, you know, doctor's appointments or things. A lot of our counties here have zero ICU rooms in their hospitals, entire counties. So to be able to find an ICU bed, they may have to travel over an hour, sometimes four hours to get to a hospital that does have an ICU bed. So if they are not even prepared for ICU beds, the likeliness that they're going to have some of these other items is definitely going to be smaller because they're not even trained to treat patients as ICU care. So it's it's definitely something that you would probably be more difficult to find in those areas. So I'm looking at this from the public perspective. Obviously, you're looking at it, I, I would assume, from the provider perspective. So from the public perspective, if my hospital doesn't have these special rooms, they don't have these ventilated headboards, you know, it, we're, we're removing the healthcare professionals that are high risk. So we're already having fewer doctors and nurses to begin with. And then the only other thing we can do for them is give them homemade masks, which have uncertain ability to protect them. It's likely then that at least some of them are going to get sick. That's even fewer people available. So if I get sick, then there are going to be fewer doctors and fewer nurses available to take care of me. Do you, would you say that that's a, a reasonable conclusion? You know, that's definitely something that I think we would all kind of, of look for more information on. The way information is, is being brought out at this point, it's very difficult to kind of get a full picture of how things are going in different hospitals and and things like that with different networks. For example, we had a doctor here in town, emergency room doctor, you know, mentioned to someone that, you know, we are completely overloaded in that emergency room of that particular network. And then the next day we hear, you know, of, of doctors being suspended or nurses going on their, their Facebook and pleading, you know, with people to, to please stay home because of the increase of patients that we're getting and they are also, you know, sometimes being suspended or or taken off the job completely. And information from, from rural counties and, and smaller hospital networks is something I think we would all appreciate a little bit more of a picture of, but it's just something that, that's not available yet. Well, so I know for me personally, and I'm not speaking on behalf of the organization or anything like that, just me personally, I feel pretty strongly 
that the surgical masks, the N95 masks, need to be reserved for the healthcare providers so that they can take care of the sick people and so they can protect themselves while doing that, which leaves the rest of us wondering, okay, now what? So the CDC has started recommending that cloth face coverings, these homemade masks that you were talking about before, maybe should be worn. It's not, it's kind of a wishy-washy recommendation, but maybe should be worn in public because we know that up to 25% of the people who contract COVID-19 are asymptomatic, but they're still spreading the virus. So when you're going out in public, you may be exposed and not know that you're exposed because the person who is spreading these viral particles does not appear to be sick. And I want to talk about that a little bit for some of our listeners, because I know there's been so much misinformation being circulated online right now about masks in general, but especially about cloth masks. So before we get into the weeds on this, I did want to talk a little bit about the history of mask usage, especially cloth masks. You know, when the original SARS epidemic in 2003 spread through Asia, cloth mask wearing in public became very common and and still is. Even when there are no pandemics, when there are no epidemics spreading, a lot of times you will see in very crowded public places in parts of China and Hong Kong and Japan and Singapore, people wearing cloth masks. And I think that a lot of Um, Americans, a lot of Europeans, been a lot of international talk about this, have pointed to that and said, well, here is evidence that wearing cloth masks works to contain pandemics, to contain epidemics. We know it works because this is the big lesson that people learned in Asia from SARS. And there's some truth to that. There is some truth to that. But I think there's some, some misunderstanding about why that works. Okay, so that's what I want to talk about here for just a moment. When the people are wearing a cloth mask in a community where it is expected, where we want everybody who steps outside their doors to don a mask, it is for the protection of the community. Because one of the things that we know from studies is that wearing a mask cuts down significantly on spreading viral particles when the infected person is the one wearing the mask. Because when you cough into the mask, the larger droplets are going to be contained by the mask. And the smaller ones, even the ones that pass through the fabric, it's going to significantly reduce the spread. So instead of flying, you know, eight feet from you, they're going to drop two to three feet from you and that kind of thing. So does wearing a cloth mask in public protect me? That's a really loaded question. It's a difficult one to answer, and it, and it takes more than a yes or no. If everybody wears one, are we going to see the number of cases of COVID-19 drop? Yes, because everybody is going to include the people who are sick. And when they are wearing them, it's good for the rest of us. Is just me personally wearing a cloth mask going to protect me from contracting the disease from someone else? It may help, but it's not foolproof, right? Because I can still get it, as Kristen said, through my eyes. I can get it from, you know, getting the particles on the mask and then putting them in my grocery bag. Uh, We've seen a lot of people wearing them improperly, dangling them from their neck and things like that. And even if I'm using it exactly correctly, they just don't cut down that much on the transmission. 
you know, we have several studies circulating and a lot of them have very conflicting information. We want to take a minute and talk about those results. In 2015, there was a study done in Singapore looking at the effectiveness of cloth masks on healthcare providers. And what they found is that using cloth masks significantly increased the likelihood that those healthcare providers would contract a virus. Um, And I believe it was influenza that they were studying, but any virus was the takeaway from that study because the masks only blocked about 3% of viral particles when used commonly. I have seen some studies circulating right now that were done in some American universities. I think the New York Times just ran a big article about it where they were touting, you know, 60% of the particles were blocked. One of them even said 80% of the particles were blocked by a cloth mask if you use a filter of some kind in it. But what you have to understand when you read that study is that was done in a lab in controlled settings using sealed containers. That's not how people wear a mask on their face. You're not going to have an airtight seal between a cloth mask and your skin for exactly the reasons that Kristen has explained. So does the fabric in ideal conditions block that percentage of viral particles? Maybe, sure. But is that the level of efficacy you're going to have when you personally wear it? No. And so uh, we wanted to kind of explain the history of that and the science there before we get into talking about how you should wear a cloth mask and what they're good for and things like that. Um, Because it's really important that we understand that cloth masks, when worn by a large percentage of the population, can absolutely cut down on the spread of the disease because the sick people are wearing them. But they're not a magic solution. And it's really, really critical that especially our high-risk community, that you are still taking all the proper precautions. You're still washing your hands. You are still not touching your face. You are still practicing social distancing because you are not protected just because you have a cloth mask on your face. All right, so Kristen, I'm going to hop off my soapbox here for a second because sometimes when it's something I'm passionate about, I just run away. And I want you to, to talk about this from the healthcare perspective. If people are going to wear a mask, What do you want them to know? Well, the information you just provided is definitely key. I mean, that is the the part of the whole problem is we've known for weeks about the people who can spread it before they show symptoms. Now we're finding out they can spread it and never show symptoms at all. Now, let's talk about, I agree, what you need to know if you are going to to participate and wear these masks. So the healthcare professionals are going intentionally within several inches of someone with the virus, with positive. So those people are going from room to room to room wearing this equipment and their lives depend on it. For the normal population, you are not going to place yourself six inches within someone who is positive and remain there for a 10-hour, 16-hour period, something like that. So there's all kinds of cloth masks. I saw a local news guy the other day, took a bandana, folded it over a million different ways, looped it through a couple of hair ties, and then used the hair ties as rubber bands to, you know, kind of loop it around his ears. I've seen ones with the HEPA filters, vacuum cleaner bags, even panty liners or maxi pads where the absorbent part faces the person wearing so that it can absorb more of the particles that you're breathing out. The plastic side would then block things from 
coming in. So many different masks. There's no way to be able to tell which inserts or which masks are going to work best for people at this point. So we want to go over, of course, the, the best ways to you know, put on and, and remove the mask. Remember, definitely don't touch the, the square part of the mask. Wash your hands before and after. And I'm just going to throw this in. Wash your hands as much as you possibly can. So, you know, it's not just after using the restroom anymore. It's wash your hands before you prepare your food. Wash your hands again before you sit down to eat because you know, it may be on that glass mayonnaise container that you just made your tuna with or something like that. So in the, the process of preparing your food, you may have also touched something with the virus. So wash your hands again before you eat. Wash your hands when you're done eating just to make sure that as you are touching your mouth, if you were able to get any any virus anywhere that, you know, you're washing it off before going to other portions of the house and then touching doorknobs things like that. So definitely you want to wash your hands, not just when putting it on and taking it off. Use hand sanitizer as well if you can't wash your hands. So if you've used the gas pump, you know, use that hand sanitizer. Use your bleach wipes. After you drive your car, wipe off the turn signal for the people that actually use one. We're finding this virus everywhere. So if you're going to wear a mask, know that you have to also clean areas around you because the mask is not going to be 100% effective. It is a full picture that you need to get of, of how to protect yourself. So one of those things is proper disposal or storage of your mask. As I said, don't just place it in your grocery bag. You want to, as you get home, take that off as maybe the last thing. So of course, leave your shoes outside. Don't bring those in the house. They've got virus all over the bottom of them. You know, maybe try to remove your clothes and your mask as soon as you get in and throw those items directly into the washer. We're finding a lot of people are not washing these cloth masks every day. So they're taking the virus and putting it right back on before they even leave the house. That can be a, a great way to spread it. We're having people, of course, take them off and, and just lay them on the seat of the car, things like that. So you would want to use the mask and make sure you're doing proper disposal or washing of it. If you're doing the tape along the bridge of the nose, you can remove the tape before washing it simply by grabbing it with a, a napkin or a paper towel to throw that tape away, throw it in the washer, reuse it again the next day. Make sure you're not using tape like duct tape. While, yes, that is super thick and particles aren't going to get through, as you're ripping that off the cloth, it is going to spread the weave of the cloth. Obviously, the tighter knit the weave of the cloth is, the better. So be careful with what we call saving the integrity of the mask. You don't want to do anything that would make the mask less useful in the future. So make sure that you're putting it on properly, make sure you're taking it off properly, but also make sure you're, you're cleaning your entire environment while you're out and about to make sure that you're not bringing that into to your home and to your family. Okay. And on the subject of washing masks, I do want to point out, since a lot of our listeners are immunocompromised, that cloth masks in particular do pose a risk to immunocompromised wearers. When you are, anytime you are donning any kind of mask, you are creating a dark, hot, moist environment, which is exactly what 
bacteria needs to grow in, which has nothing to do with COVID-19. But if you do not have an immune system that can fight off bacterial infections, you are putting yourself at risk of developing bacterial pneumonia if you are breathing in bacterial spores. So it is incredibly important that if you are on immunosuppressants or for any other reason are immunocompromised, if you are going to wear a cloth mask, you need to not wear it for an extended period of time. If it is wet to the touch, it needs to be taken off and it needs to be washed before you use it again. It is incredibly, incredibly important. The last thing we need is to be sending people to the emergency room with pneumonia who don't have COVID-19 because, you know, uh, my fear would be that they would then contract COVID-19 on top of their pneumonia. Okay, so also on the subject of cloth masks, I love social media. It's one of my social outlets since I am disabled and now quarantined, so I don't really get out that much. Everything on my Facebook feed is, uh, hey, sew cloth masks and donate them to healthcare settings. Kristen, do you feel that healthcare providers can use these masks? Do you find that that would be a useful contribution that people could make during this time if people are trying to find a way to help? So that really depends on each healthcare provider. Where I'm at, we have actually received several donations. And I have actually had a another provider ask me just yesterday if we still had any of those donations. So we are actually personally, the, the ones that I work with are using those masks to get in and out of the building. So the PPE that we're wearing in and out of each room with the patients stays where we work. It does not come out into the community, into other places of the hospital, the elevator, the cafeteria. Those exposed, infected types of items have to stay in the department, whether that's in the disposal bin, whether that's in some sort of, I've seen places with paper bags or bins to be disinfected, whatever the case may be, those are all staying in our department. We are not wearing those out. We are also using a lot of those in our, our family setting. So a lot of us are trying to live separate from our family members so that we reduce the risk of transmission. There's even websites where, you know, RVs that haven't been used by by people who only use them in the summer can be brought to your driveway and you can live in this RV instead of, you know, entering your your home space. So a lot of us are also using those around our, our family members and things as well. We're obviously not taking this very precious PPE home with us, even though that there's a really high risk, we could introduce that to our families. So it is definitely something that people can do. It's something we appreciate uh, and that we are using. Do we want you to sew all these masks, walk up to the emergency room and give a donation? No, we do not want you to put yourself at risk in any way. If you have a doctor's office or something like that, certainly call and see if they are able to take a donation. Most of us can share those with the hospital. We're already in that kind of environment. We're already familiar. We know friends or or people who are in different departments that we can share things with, or we can walk down to different donation boxes. 
But we do not, of course, want people to place themselves at risk by rushing into the emergency room to drop off donations when there are other people with the flu pandemic, which is still obviously an issue, the the flu going around. We don't want people coming into that environment as well as the COVID environment intentionally just to drop those off. However, they are making such a difference to our own lives as well as all the lives of people you know. So even if you were to drop it off at the front of your grocery store so that older people walking in and out would be able to do those. Those are other places that you could certainly drop that off and it would make a huge difference to the community as a whole, as well as healthcare professionals. That's a really interesting idea. I've also seen some police departments asking for donations and uh, who else? Instacart type shoppers, people who are doing grocery shopping on behalf of others asking for masks. So, so definitely lots of opportunities to donate to people if that interests you. I personally do not so. I've always wanted to learn. And the few times that I have tried, it has not gone well. So I am using my talents in other ways. But the people who can sew, if you are interested, we're going to have some information for you in our COVID-19 Facebook group. And we encourage you to join that. So now, listeners, it is your turn to have a seat at the table. Please visit our show discussion group to keep the conversation going. You'll find it at our organization's Facebook page. Just search for at IFAI Arthritis and then look for groups. Choose the COVID-19 group and then find the post that features this episode. If you want your comments or questions to be private, you can also message us at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. All of those are at IFAI Arthritis, or you can email us at podcast at AIarthritis.org. You can find this episode and all our shows on our website at AIarthritis.org backslash podcast and on our special COVID-19 page at AIarthritis.org backslash COVID-19. There you will also find additional resources to help you navigate this pandemic. And if you are listening to this on your favorite podcast station, please make sure to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Thank you, Kristen, for joining me today. I had a great time talking to you. And uh, we invite all of our listeners to please pull up a seat at the table because only together can we truly impact the community. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Join us again on Wednesday for our special breakout episode where we bring your comments, questions, and ideas to the table. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. 